0: Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast. My name is James and I'm the pastor here at Sar Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain and this is our midweek audio-only Bible teaching. We've been walking through God's Word one chapter a week and today we get to Leviticus chapter 22. Now, as we say every week, if you've never read this, if you've not read Leviticus 22 in the recent past, if you've no idea what it's about, go ahead, press pause and read it and then we'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in the Word. So Leviticus 22 picks up right where 21 left off. It's kind of one big narrative. And the theme kind of shifts in the middle, uh, which is probably why it's divided into two chapters. But please do remember chapters and verses weren't added until hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after these texts, maybe even thousands of years in this case, uh, after they were written. They're not divinely inspired Um They are there for reference and for ease of finding stuff. So when I say, look, we're in Leviticus 22, you can quite easily find that, rather than um, we are 80% through Leviticus, and we're talking about this, and you've got to thumb through a massive document. Anyway, all that to say, Leviticus 22 picks up right where 21 left off, and we read that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name, I am the Lord. Now, this might seem uh, a really strange thing to say to the priests. Stay away from the holy things. And it's a really difficult Hebrew word to translate. If you read around this, uh, abstain normally means get away from, stay away from, have nothing to do with. You know, we often talk about abstaining from sin or... Very more maybe more commonly abstaining from sexual relations, you know keeping yourself away from that, not indulging in that, not practicing that. so it seems a strange thing to said to the priests, but if you read around it, what's really being said to them here is that they need to have a healthy separation and a respect and a reverence for the holy things. So remember the priests in this place and at this time have got this very special role of representing God to the people and people to God so they're dealing with all these very holy things and articles, offerings, sacrifices, the tabernacle, the bread of the presence, the lamps, all these things that we've talked about through Exodus and Leviticus and the idea to look, abstain from the holy things means really to treat them with respect and reverence. Never get too comfortable, never forget what you're doing representing God to the people and people to God. It is a really serious uh, and responsibility-filled role that you've got. So yeah, you know, don't forget. Take it seriously. And uh, verses then 2 to 4, 2 to 5 really talk about, look, if You are unclean. If you become ceremonially unclean, uh, as we've talked about quite a few times in Leviticus, uh, you are, for the rest of the day, disqualified from, uh, cut off from my presence, we read at the end of verse 3. Now again, more literally, this means you can't stand before me. In context, it means you can't serve in this role of representing me to the people and the people to me. And then there's a couple of examples uh, in the rest of this passage, verses 4 to 8, of how they become unclean. Uh, Most, uh, probably all of them, we've we've talked about in the past few weeks. I'll let you read those uh, in your own time. But what is the most important thing here? What's the big picture out of this passage is that having this role in the community, representing God to the people, the people to God, came with a huge responsibility. And Jesus talked about the same thing in Luke 12, you know, to the one who's been given much much is expected. So you've got this hugely honor-filled, responsibility-filled role. You need to take it seriously. If you become ceremonially unclean, you cannot serve in this role for the rest of the day. Uh, it doesn't disqualify you forever. It doesn't ruin your life. It doesn't put your career as a priest, so to speak. Uh, it doesn't throw that away. But it means until the sun sets, until the end of the day, you are ceremonially unclean and not fit to represent God in this hugely responsibility and honour-filled role. And it makes me think of uh, Lamentations verse three. So Lamentation chapter three verse twenty-three, where you know God's mercies are new every morning. He is so faithful. He knows that he's dealing with flawed and fallen people. They are going to slip and trip. You know, they are going to, whether they mean to or not, as we read in this chapter, uh, touch something that's unclean, touch a swarming thing. uh, You're going to make mistakes as a person. And that doesn't throw away you as a person and the call on your life and all of that big picture stuff. It just means, look, we need to reset, refocus, and the reverence and the respect need to be brought back. When? At the end of the day, when the sun goes down. This uh, is when people would mark the turning of the day, not at midnight, uh, not when the sun comes up. When the sun goes down, that day is finished. God's mercies are new every day. He is so faithful. So you need to just pause until the end of the day. So this first uh, passage, verses 1 to 9 it's respect. It's reverence. Why? Because they're serving God very publicly uh, in their community. They're representing God to the people and the people to God. The next passage, uh, verses 10 to 16, again reverence and respect for the holiness, for the, uh, for the, just how special God is in their community, and it centres around this idea that look, the portion of food, your income, your resources are to be kept within the immediate family of that priest. Again, not out of a sense of selfishness or an unwillingness to share, uh, but because of how serious you're going to take this role, where you've got this um, your resources uh, from. So The priests were fed, clothed, looked after. They lived on the offerings of uh, other people. And it's not too dissimilar uh, to a lot of full-time ministers now. So, for example, uh, here in Bahrain, my income, my salary, how I uh, feed and clothe and house my family, 100% comes from the church we don't have money coming in from other uh, we don't have any other sources of funding as a church it's 100% the offerings the tithes the givings of the church I don't have income from anywhere else I'm 100% reliant on the church and the idea is that, like, look, you need to take that seriously there's nothing f- frivolous about how you're using the resources that God is giving you And we see in particular, uh, a lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. Uh, No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. And then really, really interestingly, and this is going to be expanded upon in chapter 25, if a priest buys a slave, if a priest has a servant, if a priest uh, has somebody in his employment, let's say, um, they are considered as family, which... When we see how, uh, especially in the West, how slaves were treated, and how people pointed to passages in the Bible that, look, I am allowed to own slaves, and this is how I shall treat them, and that it's, it's like comparing, you know, it's apples and oranges, it's chalk and cheese, it's oil and water, these two are just so different. Now again, uh, chapter 25 expands on this idea, uh, but in a nutshell here, we're talking about if you've, God's people have have moved into the promised land and there are nations there who have been judged for their wickedness and as a result have lost their land, Um, if you, as kind of collateral from that if you have somebody from those conquered nations brought into the nation of god's people as a slave as a what's the right word as the consequence of losing a war which was very very normal and common in this time if you were conquered if you lost a war it was either death or come work for us for nothing and slaves got such a a horrible connotation for, for most of us. It's so much so that we don't really like to say it. So look, people who were on the losing end of a war were either dead or enslaved. Can't work for us uh, for nothing. And the idea was here that the priests were not going to share their resources with anybody but their immediate family. If the daughter goes and gets married, we read, uh, she's now supported by her husband. If she's widowed, actually she can come back to the priest's house and eat it. But also can... Your you know enslaved uh, men, women in your household, so all of that to say, they were treated as family, they were treated uh in this place, and at this time, they were treated better in the priest's house than a guest now again, in this place, and at this time, the culture of hospitality and outdoing one another with honor was so great that for a slave a servant to be treated better than a guest really speaks into how they were viewed in this, or how they should have been viewed. So again, for people to use the Old Testament to justify modern-day slavery is just despicable. And there's a great Bible commentator, theologian called Adam Clark, and he said that the situation for slaves and servants in the Old Testament was incomparably better than the situation of slaves under different European governments of whose souls their pitiless possessors in general took no care while they themselves venture to profess the Christian religion and quote the mosaic law in vindication of their system of slavery. How preposterous is such conduct and how intolerable. I think we can't say it better than that, can we, people who point and people who cherry pick verses and say, "Look, I am allowed to own slaves. It is good, it is the Christian it's not the Christian thing to do. You miss all the context of actually it was either death or come serve us, work for us for nothing, and many people chose that if you became bankrupt, you would as we're going to talk about in chapters twenty four twenty five 25, uh, you would indenture yourself. You would sell yourself into slavery to work off a debt. And so the idea that people would point to the Old Testament and say, see, look, slavery is good. Slavery is the Christian thing to do. is just, as Adam Clark said there, it's preposterous and it's just intolerable. The rest of the chapter then, verses 17 to the end, talks about acceptable Offering. So we've talked about reverence, respect in the priest's conduct, and uh, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, this is now verse 17 and 18, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when you bring your offerings, it's got to be like this, 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 this. And again, there are some big principles here. It's got to be perfect, it's got to be male, it's got to be without blemish. Uh, if it's going to be a burnt offering, a peace offering, a free will offering, No blemish. It's going to be perfect. And then there are some specifics there between verses 22 and 25. I'll let you read those in your own time. But again, the big picture, the principle is that we're giving God our best. We're not giving God our cast-offs. He gave us His absolute best in His one and only Son, it's not right that, that God's people here in this place would give him animals with blemish, stuff that you don't want to actually look after or raise or, or, or use for your own food and, and provision. Actually, we we'll give that a sacrifice. It reminds me of a story that somebody told me about um, a church that was having a collection of money and resources and gifts uh, for a missionary family that were somewhere else in the world from them. And uh, one person turned up with a bag of used... Tea bags for this missionary family. I thought it was perfectly acceptable to send to people serving God wholeheartedly with their whole lives a, a, a bag of used tea bags, and the attitude of this this person was, well, they'll just make do, I guess, if they're out there serving. They shouldn't care about whether their tea is nice and fresh. They should just be grateful that I've sent, and that is just so wrong. If Jesus were to come in person, bodily, to that lady's house, she probably wouldn't get out an old, dirty, used tea bag and make Jesus a cup of tea with it. She'd serve the best that she possibly could best cups, she'd boil fresh water, she'd get out her best tea if she's got good tea and bad tea. You know what I mean? She would give her absolute best. The principle of giving our best to God we see again and again and again. And it is epitomized. It is the crown jewel of this principle is God giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. It didn't just make do with, you know, it was the absolute best. There are no castoffs. The sacrifice here, when we read about it being uh, without blemish, it's not something that we use in our everyday vernacular, is it? Uh, the idea is that it's whole, that it's complete. There is nothing lacking in it. Within that sacrifice, it is going to do the job wholeheartedly. It's going to complete the job. Um, There's going to be nothing left. There's going to be nothing missing from that sacrifice. And then at the end of Leviticus 22, we get this little summary in verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. That should be enough, shouldn't it, I am God, maker of heaven and earth, brought you out of Egypt, slavery rescued you, protect you, provide for you. Um, This is how I say you should live. But there's even more. Uh, And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So there are four reasons there why God's people then, and here in Leviticus, and us now, as modern-day believers, Uh, should take seriously, should have that respect and reverence that we've talked about for God and his word and his will and his ways. So because of who he is, I am the Lord, God, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, For what he is, uh, he is holy. You're going to keep my commandments so you don't profane my holy name. God is holy, separate, he's distinct, he is complete, as we've just talked about with sacrifices. Uh, For We listen to God, we obey his word and his will and his ways because of what he is doing. Uh, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. It's God through his indwelling spirit who... Sanctifies us who day by day helps us to become conformed more and more and more into the image of His Son to leave behind our old lives and passions and pleasures to pursue God's Word and His will and His ways. And then the fourth thing, what He has already done, uh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were this group of people were very, very special and they had first hand experience of God physically bringing them out of Egypt, physically rescuing, delivering them from sin. And as the New Testament uh, comes into play, as the big narrative of the Bible develops, we see Egypt referenced and used as an example of sin. Now, you and me were not physically delivered from Egypt. No, we're not going to pretend that, but God has also brought us out of a life of sin, and the consequences of that, the wages of that, as Paul says, are death, so uh, God didn't physically bring us out of the land of Egypt, nobody has brought us out of darkness into light, from death to life, so those four things, who he is, what he is, what he's doing, and what he's done, are still very, very true for us as motivating factors, as the reasons why we should have that huge respect and reverence for his word and his will and his ways and obedience to what he says we should be doing and what he says we shouldn't be doing. Next week in Leviticus 23, we will talk about some different feasts of the Lord. But until then, God bless.